The Institute. Institute. Institute for Justice. The National Law Firm for Liberty. Hello and welcome to Short Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. I'm Adam Shelton, your host for today's episode, filling in for John Ross, and I'm joined by the Director for the Center of Judicial Engagement, Anthony Sanders, and IJ Attorney Rob Bacola. Anthony, let's start things off with you in the First Circuit with the Social Security benefits in Puerto Rico. Yes, we're going to have some exciting law here about Social Security disability. Actually, it's much more exciting about law than that. It's about the rational basis test and Puerto Rico's status as a territory, but not a state. Uh, What this has to do with is how Social Security disability works. Most of you are probably familiar with the fact that if you get uh, a disability and you're a worker, there's some kind of money you can turn to from the federal government. And it's actually through the social security system, the same system, of course, that pays uh, retirees benefits. But there's a couple different kinds of social security disability that are at issue in this case. There's the kind that is pegged to um, your working that you've done in the past that you've, say, paid into the system. And that's the kind that most people are familiar with. And that, just like Social Security retirement, is going to what what you you get may depend upon what you've paid into the system in the past. But there's another kind of social security disability which is um, which is title 16, it was title 2 is the the kind you're more familiar with, which is for low income uh, people with not many assets and that does not depend on what you've uh, what you've worked in the past or it isn't calibrated to what you pay in through social security um, uh, payroll deductions. Now, so that kind of benefit you can get if you live in the 50 United States, the District of Columbia, and the Northern Mariana Islands. However, if you live in Puerto Rico or other U.S. territories like Guam or the Virgin Islands, you can't get that kind of benefit. Puerto Rico citizens of uh, or, or Puerto Rico residents have been citizens of the United States for 100 years now. They can freely move to the United States. And this case concerns someone who did just that. Uh, Jose Luis Valeo uh, Madero, whose name I just butchered. Uh, Jose, he was born in Puerto Rico, raised there, but then he moved to New York a number of years ago and lived there for quite some time. And then at one point uh, later in his, in his life, he got injured and he applied for these social security disability benefits that that are not pegged to what you've contributed in, into the system for whatever reason. They're for those who are disabled, who are blind, and also those who are over 65. He got those benefits. This was in 2012. But then for whatever reason, he moved back to Puerto Rico. Now, the problem is, you, if you're from Puerto Rico, you can get the benefits. You just can't live in Puerto Rico. But because he moved back there, uh, he then was no longer eligible. Now, th- this didn't come out for whatever reason for a little while until a couple years later, he went back to Social Security in, in uh, Puerto Rico and applied for the other kind of disability benefits. And this is, a, uh, I guess, a lesson in, you know, don't. Go talk to the government unless you think you need to, because then at that point, after he applied, they said, oh, wait a minute, you shouldn't be getting this other benefit in the first place. 
And so the United States government actually sued him and at one point prosecuted him for criminal charges to try to get back benefits that he had got since he moved to Puerto Rico, which totaled about $28,000. He was then appointed counsel by the court because, of course, someone like that is not going to be able to, to afford an attorney usually. And uh, the pro bono counsel that was appointed for him obviously paid some attention in, in constitutional law class because they added a uh, affirmative defense that this distinction between if you live in Puerto Rico or if you live in the mainland of the United States is unconstitutional under the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And it was actually an equal protection defense. You may be saying, well, I don't remember an equal protection clause in the Fifth Amendment. You're correct. But the Fifth Amendment, since uh, the companion case to Brown versus Board of Education, Bowling versus Sharp, has been read to have an equal protection component to it. So the 14th Amendment, which applies to states, has an equal protection clause and a due process clause and some other stuff separate from each other. In the Fifth Amendment, the equal protection has been read into the due process clause. And so because this is the case with the federal government, this uh, this pro bono counsel said, look, there's a there's a equal protection problem here because he could have got kept getting those benefits if he stayed in New York, but just because he moved to Puerto Rico, where it's just as lawful for him to live as in, as in New York and people are U.S. citizens, he doesn't get the benefit. Well, the district court in Puerto Rico actually found for uh, the defendant that this was unconstitutional. And after applying something that a lot of listeners know well, the rational basis test. Uh, the rational basis test applies in equal protection cases where there's not some kind of, of heightened reason that there's a special class, such as an, a race case or a, or a gender case. But most distinctions that government makes are subject to the rational basis test, which as we at IJ know, is very, very easy for the government to generally satisfy. But this is one case where at the district court, the the court found that it was not satisfied. So it goes to the first circuit, which is the circuit with jurisdiction over Puerto Rico. And there, things went the same way for uh, Mr. Madero, although on, on slightly different grounds. And how the court ruled was, first of all, it had to deal with a couple cases from the Supreme Court from the 1970s that were on similar arguments, uh, similar issues, but they weren't absolutely binding. One was about this actually the same system that was at issue in this case by someone's, someone who had a similar experience, but it was, uh, it was a right to travel claim not an equal protection claim. So the court said, well, that doesn't, doesn't really apply. And the other was, uh, was a claim about uh, welfare benefits, uh, AFDC benefits that I had different rules for Puerto Rico and the, and the rest of the country. But more importantly, and this is something that, to keep in mind about how the Supreme Court operates, both of them were just summary dis- dispositions. They weren't cases that go to the Supreme Court and got full briefing and full argument. They were just... Dis- uh, they were just rendered on the papers after initial briefing at the at the court, and although that is technically precedent, it's it's not the same as as 
uh, precedent that you would get with a full Supreme Court opinion. At least that was the, the First Circuit's view. Then the, the court went into the full rational basis analysis uh, that uh, IJ attorneys are, are very familiar with, and I'm sure some of our listeners have heard in, in other cases as well. All the government has to do in a rational basis case is say that there is uh, a, a reason for this law that is legitimate, uh, that, is, that is rationally related to a legitimate governmental interest. Here, the governmental interest was really was saving money. And so what is a legitimate reason for this distinction? Well, usually in a case like this, especially one involving just, you know, spending of, of benefits, the court's going to say there's no reason for mathematical nicety. And so it works, right? It saves the government money. So it works. In this case, though, the court really dug into some of the details and said, for example, that one reason given was that uh, if you gave these benefits in Puerto Rico, they would undermine the Puerto Rican economy because the cost of living is less there. And therefore, these benefits are, are you know, just going to have a, an outsized role in, in making people not want to work is essentially what the argument was. Uh, and they and the court said, well, you could have that argument, but you know that could work in parts of the United States also that are uh, that are not as wealthy, and yet it doesn't it doesn't hold up there. Uh, they had also dug into some economic analysis, some pretty detailed stuff that you you, you almost never see in a rational basis opinion. It um, interestingly quoted the case Caroline Products which is, is infamous for its footnote four. It's a 1938 case from the Supreme Court. And that footnote is always cited to say that there are rights that are more special than others when it comes to the Constitution, and economic rights aren't, aren't some of those. But what it quoted Caroline Products for was another part of the opinion that says, something can be constitutional one day, but if the facts change, then later on, the law can be un become unconstitutional. So with that, the court looked into a couple more arguments. One was that the Puerto Rican uh, Puerto Ricans don't pay income tax, and therefore it's rational to not. So Anthony, um, in general, do we do we see a lot of this happening um, in rational basis tests, where the court really like digs into the facts, or is this kind of a judicial engagement view of rational basis? Uh, th this is very judicial <laughs> engagement. Uh, it, it, it's taking the rational basis test and really pushing it to, uh, to what a court can do. I'm not saying it's illegitimate by that. and We, we wish courts would do this a, a lot more in, in various circumstances. But in, in looking at the kind of at, at a really granular level, the, the economic reasoning that the government put forward, there's a lot more there than um, than you would expect, such as this last point that if the uh, if, if Puerto Ricans don't pay income tax, so therefore it's rational to just not give them this benefit. And they made the point, well, like people in the United States who don't pay the mainland, who don't pay the income tax can get this benefit. In fact, that's kind of why the, the system is set up. So uh, so with all that, they said that this is unconstitutional and therefore that uh, Mr. Madero can get his benefits. 
Um, it's a little unclear uh, from one read whether it applies just to people who say got the benefit in the United States and then more of the Puerto Rico. But I think when you read the conclusion, it seems like this applies to everyone in Puerto Rico, even those who don't who haven't left, which I think makes it pretty likely that the the U.S. will ask for cert uh, in the case, and 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 you could get you could get a circuit split with the other circuits that have U.S. territories, but for um, uh, because Puerto Rico is the biggest of those, I, I think there might be a good chance that this goes up to the court. Rob, any thoughts on uh, the court potentially taking review in this case or just kind of how the court applied uh, rational basis in general here? Well, I found it heartening that the First Circuit cited some U.S. Supreme Court cases where rational basis review resulted in curbing uh, government excess. You had them cite the Cleburne case, uh, which is an off-sided rational basis victory uh, where there had been a zoning restriction on a home for disabled folks. And they also cited Romer versus Evans, where the court um, struck down a Colorado law that uh, essentially invalidated any municipal protections for LGBT people. And so I think that it's Probably no accident that those cases were uh, part of the discussion uh, and that if if it does go up, we can never forget that there is Supreme Court precedent uh, at our fingertips uh, and sometimes from not very long ago where they applied the test and applied it in a meaningful way. All right, well, moving on to Pennsylvania, where the Pennsylvania Supreme Court dealt with some coronavirus-related restrictions. Uh, Rob, what was going on there? Well, in this case, you had uh, a, a fascinating coalition of Pencil, Pennsylvania residents who were affected by the governor's, uh, not, not uncommon these days, order essentially closing all what are termed non-life-sustaining businesses to reduce the spread of this virus. And this really uh, was was a deep reach into the constitutional bag of tricks. You had uh, these king's bench powers invoked, and they really do mean the king. This dates back to 1722 when Pennsylvania was but a colony uh, ruled over by the crown. And essentially what this king's bench power is, is an emergency power where some event has created some sort of statewide crisis that doesn't have time to go through the typical judicial channels of litigation, and you get the Supreme Court weighing in right away. And here you had challenges with a whole grab bag of constitutional rights. You had a uh, politician, a, a Mr. Danny DeVito. I don't think the one of um, film fame married to the actress Rhea Perlman. And you also had a realtor who was uh, dealing with the essentially the closure of the broker she was working for as business and an inability to continue her livelihood. And also a golf course that was limited to only serving carryout while still maintaining their greens, which could have a a detrimental or even fatal uh, economic effect. Uh, 
none of those arguments were availing with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Um, they had a very deferential view of what the governor's authorities were. And the, the opinion was sent, essentially divided into to, to two parts. And in, in the first part, you look at, well, what is an emergency uh, that, that merits this kind of uh, executive authority to begin with? And there was um, some parsing. Uh, some might consider uh, hair splitting over whether the kind of things contemplated uh, by the statute, things like natural disasters, uh, earthquakes, explosions, the kind of things that uh, could es essentially deprive someone of, of their property and of, of their safety in a very physical way versus a, a virus, which isn't mentioned in, in the law, but uh, the court nevertheless held that, well, yeah, this is of a piece with these kind of life-threatening um, ills that, that, that were meant to be encompassed by the governor's jurisdiction. Uh, Anthony, I know that uh, when we were chatting about this case, that, uh, that well, let me ask this. What, what are your thoughts? Do you think that maybe some more uh, analysis was needed to determine whether this COVID emergency was of a piece with those kind of uh, physical disasters? Yeah, well, I, I think it's interesting. But one thing that's interesting about this case is we, we a lot of people, you know, even people who, who are usually pretty liberty-minded are, are pretty sympathetic to what the governor is, is trying to do here. But that does have to be based in law. And this emergency code defines disasters pretty uh, extensively and, and it defines, it says a man-made disaster, natural disaster, a war-caused disaster. And then it has all these things that could be a natural disaster, hurricane, tornado, storm, flood, it goes on and on, tidal wave, earth, I don't know many tidal waves on the Chesapeake, but tidal wave, earthquake, landslide. And, um, and then at the end it says, or other catastrophe which results in substantial damage to property, hardship, suffering, or possible loss of life. None of that really seems to have to do with a disease. I mean, they, you know, they knew about diseases when they wrote this statute. It's it's not in there, but I mean, every possible thing that could happen as a natural disaster is in there. I that is a I thought that was a pretty thin read to rest the the rest of the uh, analysis on. All right, and as far as the dissenting and concurring opinion, did the dissenting judges have anything to say about fact-finding issues or the the waiver issues or anything like that? Well, the 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 waiver um, component of all this is in some ways the most important part because this was not a sort of Solomonic order whereby everyone is bound with no recourse, there, there was a way to get essentially uh, a determination that you were incorrectly classified as a non-life-sustaining business. And curiously, another realtor did get that kind of dispensation to go forward with a real estate business that was deemed um, life-sustaining. So just underscores, and we encounter this quite a bit in IJ cases and particularly in rational basis cases where it's the factual record that is so critical to make uh, a, an informed judicial determination. And as the dissent pointed out, um, that that should be the 
way that this is handled going forward is uh, a, a, an action in the Commonwealth Court where you can have that kind of fact finding. The, as the dissent pointed out, you know the the the, the Supreme Court is is not meant to be, nor is it a um, the best fact finding body. And Rob, do we know that other realtor, like why that realtor was given a waiver and not other realtors? I know it was. I, I we'll we'll have to pull that because it was uh, the, the 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 opinion referenced it and the uh, that apparently the it was attached as to the opinion and it was like well maybe I don't know if they were selling a warehouse filled with ventilators or something. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. So what's kind of the step forward for all these people now? Um, there was, a, you know, the golf course, the realtor, the, the political candidate, Danny DeVito, but not, most likely not the Danny DeVito. Where did these people kind of go from here after this Supreme Court decision? Well, they all had different sort of species of claim um, that were all sort of knocked out. Um, there was the idea from the politician that his free speech was... Um, quelled because people who were already elected to office have the benefit of a full staff and a full office. And th as the opinion pointed out, well, it is a crime if they use those resources to campaign. But I mean, it's in an election year like this, it does raise an interesting constitutional question, which is how do you sort of level the playing field between elected officials who have all the benefits of the incumbent's bully pulpit um, versus a insurgent or startup type campaign that is essentially going to have to be run from from the basement. And uh, it the at least under this court's reading, um, that's a that is a not a meaningful distinction. And the uh, courts are 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 not uh, at this point going to to give much credence, I don't think, to that kind of free speech argument. I think that the, the glimmer of hope will be, as, as the effects of this order go on, that a Commonwealth Court action where you do have um, a, a factual record to really tease out the equal protection implications here. I mean, I, th I think we all agree that, you know, it's it when, when you treat different things differently, it's much harder to make uh, an equal protection claim. But it's not entirely clear based on the limited record that that's what happened uh, in this case. And I think that going forward, um, it's, I hate to say wait and see, but <laughs> that seems to be, that seems to be what every single person on this planet is doing right now. We're all just waiting to see how things play out. And I could give you an answer, but um, as every day during this crisis, we find ourselves heading down a maze of useless conjecture. Well, gosh, I, what's going to happen at the end of April? Well, then what's going to happen two weeks after that and two weeks after that? Well, those questions don't have answers. Okay, well, that concludes our show. Thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Adam Shelton with the Institute for Justice encouraging you to get engaged.